Good morning. Good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. You will uh, notice there's several things in the back of your worship folder to pay attention to, but I want to draw attention to one of those things, which would be we have Advent devotionals available out on the welcome table as you come in to the lobby. This is Jonathan Gibson's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and it is a Christmas or Advent liturgy meaning that each day is laid out with several components. There's scripture reading, there's some singing, there's confession and adoration, there is uh, creeds and confessions to read. It's very comprehensive. And the reason that we went with this one as a recommended resource this year is because there is so much available there, and if you don't have the time to get through all of it, you could just pick a few parts of it and it would still be a blessing to you. It would still be helpful for you as you prepare your heart for the Advent season and the coming of Jesus. And we got them from our friends at Truth For Life. It's Alistair Begg's ministry, and they're only $10. And it's a beautiful book. Crossway did a wonderful job. So not only is the content good, but it's going to look pretty sweet on your bookshelf. So I'd recommend that you pick one up and use it to prepare your heart this season. Well, we have been now in the book of Matthew for a few months. We started in September, and it's been challenging and encouraging for me as I've been preparing these messages, and I hope the same is true for you. Many of us are, I think, more familiar with chapter 5 and on as we get into the Beatitudes and some of the more recognized teaching of Jesus, but these first four chapters have also been such a blessing to see the start and the coming and the history and the prophecy fulfilled and all of these things. It's just been, it's been so wonderful. And as we finish chapter 4 and we'll move into chapter 5, we're getting into some of the really juicy parts of the book, some things that, like I said, are probably more familiar, maybe more readily applicable in your mind, things like the Sermon on the Mount, which includes the Beatitudes, the Blessed Are section, and then we have really specific teaching from Jesus on things like anger and divorce and how to use your money and how not to worry but trust God. It's just very applicable things, and I'm really excited to get to the Sermon on the Mount. But today, we are going to finish chapter 4, so we'll take verse 12 through the end of the chapter, and I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. But then next week, I'm going to pause Matthew and preach a message on gratitude, on a biblical theology of thanksgiving as we understand what God calls us to as believers, to have thankful hearts in all circumstances. I think this is timely, not just because of the Thanksgiving holiday that we're about to celebrate, but also because as Christians, as recipients of the grace of God that Chris articulated for us so well, we have much cause for Thanksgiving. And so I want to take a week and emphasize that. Then we'll move into the Beatitudes and we will finish those by Christmas. So that's the preaching schedule that's coming up here for the next few weeks. But before we read our text and get into Matthew, I want to just note a couple of structural details that might help you as we move further into the book. So Matthew begins his gospel and ends it with narrative sections. So narrative means like a, it's, it's telling a story. It's not so much instruction, do this, don't do this. It is giving us kind of a 
behind-the-scenes look at the events and the details that led up to the start of Jesus' public ministry. So chapters 1 to 4, we might call the infancy narrative. We have the coming of Jesus, we have his growing up years, very little detail there, and then the start of his ministry, and then chapter 26 starts the passion narrative, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and life and his resurrection and ascension. So between those two bookends... Matthew breaks up the teaching of Jesus into five sections, and we're going to start that first section when we get into the Sermon on the Mount in a couple of weeks. So if you can think of Matthew as being bookended by narrative sections, then you get to the middle and we'll get into a lot of the meat of the instruction, the teaching, the things that are going to cause us to realize we are not as good as we think we are, and we need the grace of God very very desperately. So I'm eager to walk through that with you. Well, this first section that we're going to get into today is leading the way. It's preparing the way for us to get into the teaching, and we're going to look at the start of Jesus' ministry. Now, I think Matthew has three main things in mind that he's going to highlight in this passage, and three, I suppose we could call them aspects or keys of the messianic ministry. So all throughout the Old Testament, as the Messiah was promised... Even in the text that we read this morning, there was foretold that there would be certain things he would do, certain characteristics. And there are three main things, there's a lot more than that, but three main things that are keys to the Messiah's ministry would be preaching, discipling, and healing. Or we could say shepherding and healing. God has promised that there is coming somebody who is going to teach the word of God faithfully. He's going to speak truth. He's going to shepherd the people. He's going to lead them in the way that they should go. And he will explain, he will exposit the word of God truthfully. Well, we see all of these things evident in our passage today. And so we have to remember that Matthew here is not just communicating detail. He's not reading a data sheet. I don't know if you ever work with chemicals, but there's something called an MSDS sheet. It's, a, it's just a data sheet that explains very rigidly, here's what's in it, here's the purpose. That's not what Matthew is doing. He has a slant. He has a goal. He has an intention in communicating these things about Jesus. And he communicates these details, I think even today, in such a way that it would be impossible for somebody to read this and deny that Jesus is the Messiah. This is Matthew's whole goal. And we've seen this over and over again in the first three chapters. All of the Old Testament citations, all of the connections back to Genesis and Adam and Moses and David and Isaiah, all of those things are meant to inform his readers, Jesus is the Messiah. And we're going to see that again today in this last effort before the start of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew wants to tell his readers, this is it. This is him. All of the things foretold in the prophets, in the law, in the Psalms, they're all pointing to Jesus, and he does that by tying things back to the Old Testament. So, as we approach our text today, I am going to emphasize three things as well, and they're really the same things that Matthew is doing, and I'm just going to articulate them slightly differently. So we're going to see Jesus do three things in this section. He's going to fulfill prophecy, he is going to demonstrate divine authority, And he's going to model his shepherding ministry. Now these are all key aspects of the Messiah's ministry when he comes. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. And I invite you to follow along. We'll start reading in verse 12. So Matthew chapter 4 and starting in verse 12. 
Now when he heard that John had been arrested, that is John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, cast in a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they, be, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Father, thank you for <clears throat> recording these details for us in your word. Thank you that you have preserved these accounts that so we can see the start of Jesus' ministry. We can see him demonstrate these key messianic fulfillments. That the things that he does are not random. The places he goes are not spontaneous and not thought through. But everything Jesus does now as he starts his ministry, has great intentionality because he is coming to fulfill all that was spoken of him by the prophets. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would take this word uh, and as we observe the start of Jesus' ministry, that you would press it into our hearts, Lord, that we would be helped, that we would learn, that we would be encouraged, that Jesus is the light that has come into the darkness and I pray that that would be a blessing and an encouragement for our hearts. So Lord, now as we open your word, would you come, keep us from error, give grace in the preaching and grace in the listening, and in everything that is said and done here, may Jesus Christ be praised. It's in his name that I pray, amen. Okay, here's a snapshot of where we're at in uh, Matthew 4, 12. Jesus has come to earth, that should be obvious at this point. He's come, he's been born of his mother Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We saw all of this in the first chapter. He has grown in favor with God and man. He has been baptized by John. He's been anointed with the Holy Spirit. We see the Spirit coming down over him. We pointed out a few weeks ago the significance of that. The Father has publicly verbalized or given testimony to the fact that he is pleased with the Son and as the divine Son of God, enabled by the Holy Spirit, Jesus then, out in the wilderness, defeats Satan, right? He resists the temptation, 
proving out his divine sonship. So all of the preliminary events have happened, and Jesus is ready and prepared to start his public ministry as the Messiah. And what we're seeing in this last section today, like I said, is more of an observation. We're, we're getting a front row seat to the events and the details that are going as Jesus begins to prepare for his public ministry and as he gets into that today. So maybe not as much do this, don't do that. We're certainly going to apply this. But we have the privilege, because of what God has done, of observing what's going on this morning. So let's get into this now. It should not surprise us that Matthew starts his account of Jesus' public ministry at the same place that Mark and Luke do. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. They agree. There's a lot of similarity. John's gospel often is quite different. He has a different emphasis in writing his gospel. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all put the beginning of Jesus' ministry at the imprisonment of John the Baptist. But as we read... John's gospel, like I said, a little bit different emphasis, a little different slant on things. We see that Jesus' ministry did actually start a little bit before this. Now, that's not contradictory. We're not saying, oh, there's two different things going on here. It is simply they have different emphasis in writing us. It shouldn't be a surprise here. So let's consider verses 12 to 17, and we'll see the first of our three points here that Jesus, in his ministry, fulfills prophecy. Jesus fulfills prophecy. So we see right away in verse 12, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. This word withdrew is used nine times in the Gospels, and almost always it refers to Jesus pulling back and and going somewhere to rest, somewhere to pray, somewhere quiet, somewhere away from things so that he can connect with the Father, so that he can recuperate, so that he can recover, uh, so to speak. So here, I think what we're seeing, even in this first verse, is a picture of Jesus' humanity. This is not the main point of the text, but I wanted to draw this out. Uh, The news of John being arrested lands with great weight on Jesus. They were friends. They were partners in the gospel. They were cousins. And when he knows that John has been arrested for, for bogus reasons, it grieves him. He's saddened. So he withdraws. He leaves Nazareth where he's been, and he settles in Capernaum. And as we continue reading, we see that this was no mistake. Again, there's nothing random in Jesus' actions. Uh, John will pull this out if, uh, when we get to the woman at the well, and we see Jesus use language like, I had to go through Samaria to get there. There's intentionality in everything Jesus does. So I want to make sure that even as we're going through these details, we do not think, oh, well, Well, that was fortunate that he went there. What if he had gone somewhere else? He couldn't. With the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment that he had from the Father, he is doing everything intentionally. It's no random move. It's no mistake what Jesus does. So he's guided there by the Spirit so that his life experience would align with the prophecy that was made before him. Okay, this is how God sees to it that his word is fulfilled. Jesus is led to a specific geographical area so that we see the connection to the messianic ministry. This is why Matthew says in verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. No randomness. It is all intentionality with the start of Jesus' ministry. 
Well, Matthew agrees with that conclusion, or rather, I agree with Matthew's conclusion, and he makes explicit the fact that Jesus moves here, he goes to Capernaum to prove he is the Messiah, and he does that, he makes that connection by quoting Isaiah 9, which we see in verses 15 and 16 of our chapter. But there's more significance to this quotation than just the geographical detail. That's part of it, but there is more going on here uh, than just the fact that Jesus went a certain place or didn't go to another place. The first seven verses of Isaiah 9, and we read some of this this morning, describe the situation of the world into which the Messiah is going to come. And the, the way that Isaiah characterizes things is he uses darkness and light as contrasts, right? The people walking in darkness, the people dwelling in darkness, the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And so we see that the condition of the world when the Messiah comes is going to be dark. And into that darkness comes light. Well, Matthew is communicating then that this darkness is spiritual, right? It's not literally that there's some sort of cloud over things, but the Jewish people have been walking in darkness. This is Isaiah's context, just like the Gentiles, unable to discern what God is doing, how he was prepping the way for the Messiah, and how he was bringing all things to the point of fulfillment or consummation in Christ. But they couldn't see it because they were walking in spiritual darkness. And not only walking, but dwelling we see this in the quote there. They were dwelling in a land of deep darkness. Now, John in his gospel is going to take the theme of light and darkness. He's going to develop that much more through his entire gospel. You can read there if you want to see more of this. But Matthew is creating this marvelous contrast that he extends hope to his readers through. So by seeing the darkness of the world and by seeing the Messiah as the light that comes into that, he is offering hope to them. He's giving hope to the unbelieving Jews, saying, you're in darkness. You haven't seen what is going on. You haven't paid attention to what God is doing. But here he is. Here's the light. The light that was promised has come into the world. Now, one difference here between Matthew's articulation and Isaiah's is that Matthew uses the word dawned for the light. On them the light has dawned. Whereas Isaiah would say, on them the light has shone. You say, oh, good grief. He just wanted to say it a different way. What's the point? There is a point. And I want to show you what this point is. It's not just that Matthew wants to say things different or be cutesy or find some other way to articulate the truth. But he says this because he has a very specific intention. He is trying to communicate that. We could all say it together. Jesus is the Messiah. So let me show you what I think is going on. Matthew is communicating when he says that the light has dawned he means not only is the light come, but he's trying to communicate that this is the start of something. This is the start of something new. And we saw this back in chapter 1 and 2, didn't we? With the language of this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. This is the start of his ministry. So when Matthew comes and he says this is the dawn of the light, he means it's starting. And John the Baptist and Jesus both affirm this when they say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close. It's coming. Now we understand the word dawn, right? I was here this morning. I get here early. It's pitch black outside, totally dark. And if you look to the east, all of a sudden you can see just a little crack of light. Just a little bit. What do we call that part of the day? 
dawn. It's the start of day. Is the sun all the way up? Is the light totally illuminating everything? No, not yet. But it is the start of something. The dawn has arrived. Things are in motion. I think that is what Matthew is doing. He is telling the readers, look, things are dark, yes, but not only has the light just come in a kind of general sense, but the light has dawned. Something is set in motion. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. So he's trying to communicate all this to his readers. So in keeping with what we've already seen in the book of Matthew, he uses the word dawn to signify that the coming of Jesus is the start, the new start for the people of God. Pay attention. This is him. This is the long-promised Messiah. So by connecting both the geography of where Jesus goes and the fact that he is the light that Isaiah talked about, Matthew shows once again how Jesus fulfills prophecy. Now next, in verses 18 to 22, we see Jesus demonstrate his divine authority. He demonstrates his divine authority. Now, I think many Christians, if we're familiar a little bit with our Bibles, if we were to say, what's the first miracle Jesus ever did? I think many people would probably say, well, he turns water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And John certainly affirms that. He says in uh, John 2.11, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at the wedding in Cana and manifested his glory. Now, I'm not arguing with John. That was the first public kind of miracle, but... The same kind of divine authority that turned the water into wine is exercised here in calling the disciples. And I'm saying that's miraculous. I'm going to take a few minutes and show you what I'm talking about here. It's every bit as much of a miracle as what Jesus does in Cana. So we're in observation mode now. So let's look at this part of the text again. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. I'm sure just randomly, right? <laughs> no. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers. Now, this is not the first time Jesus sees Simon and Andrew. It's the first time they show up in Matthew's gospel. This is why it's important to read all of the gospels together when you're going through a study on any one of them. Simon and Andrew were initially disciples of John the Baptist. They were following John the Baptist. You can read all about this in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And one day, as we read in John chapter 1, Simon and Andrew are hanging out with John the Baptist, and here comes Jesus. And then John says this really famous line, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, Simon and Andrew hear that, and they're like, well, we want to follow that guy. So they leave John the Baptist, and they start following Jesus. They're, they're interested in his earthly ministry and what he's doing. And it's at that point that Jesus tells Simon, your name's no longer going to be Simon, but you will be called Peter. That's John chapter 1, verse 42. So if we compare the timestamps here, remember I said the other three Gospels start Jesus' public ministry at the imprisonment of John, but it's really evident from John's Gospel that he meets Simon and Andrew with John the Baptist previous to that. So I hope that's not confusing, but I want to point out that Jesus already knew these two. They already were interested in him. They're already aware of what he's doing. So Jesus sees them casting their nets into the sea. He's walking by the sea. He sees them doing what fishermen do, and he calls them to follow him. Now Matthew uses, when he says, uh, verse 18, 
he sees Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. That is a perfect present participle for all the grammar nerds, which means that he sees them in the act of doing it. They are literally in the throes of their work. So Jesus catches them in the heat of the moment, and he says, leave what you're doing and follow me. And so it's just this wonderful picture of the power of the call of God. This does not happen in some kind of relaxed environment where Simon and Andrew have plenty of time to think about it, weigh their options. I don't know, do we really want to follow this guy? What's going to happen? Jesus says, follow me, boom, they lay everything down and follow him in the moment, in the middle of their livelihood. This is very significant because what it is showing us is that not only does Jesus have the power and the authority to call He has the power and the authority to ensure that the call is answered. This is why I'm saying this is a demonstration of divine authority. Have you ever been interrupted in the middle of your work? It drives me nuts. Especially if you're sitting there, I mean, I don't know whether it's physical work or if you're thinking really intently about something. There's been a number of times where I'm kind of holding something, trying to get something together, and someone comes and is like, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Like, no, can't you see what I'm doing? I'm right in the middle of something. That is the situation that Jesus calls Peter and Andrew in. They are right in the middle of doing their work. They weren't just sitting there in peace. Now, the reason that things are recorded this way is to show us the power of Jesus' call, the divine authority that is demonstrated as he interrupts their life Not only their life, but their livelihood. And he says, leave it. Leave it alone and follow me. And the text says, immediately they did this. Now the reason that I'm saying that this is a demonstration of divine authority is not because I made it up in my mind and I'm trying to fit this all into some kind of theological category, but it is because of what we read other places in the scripture. So the word that Matthew uses in verse 21, when he talks about James and John, he called them, that is the exact same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8 to refer to the sovereign, gracious call of God to dead sinners to come to life. Same word. Same kind of exercise of authority. Let me read you a couple verses from Romans 8. You all know verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now here's the, here's the linchpin for me that made this solidified in my mind. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called Same word as we see in Matthew 4. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the exact same sovereign authority that draws a dead sinner to life and calls them into relationship with God and causes them to persevere is the same authority that Jesus is using to call the disciples in Matthew 4. So I'm not making too big of a deal about this. We have to affirm the divine authority of Jesus to call to himself. And of course we know from places in the Bible that all of the physical details, all of the things that we see play out physically in the Bible are spiritual parables. So is the main point of this passage that Jesus called the disciples and they left everything? Well, yeah, that's a big part of it. But more than that, what are we seeing? 
we are seeing that Jesus has the authority and the right to do as he pleases. Why? Because he's God. He's the son of David. He is David's son and David's Lord. And as the divine son, he exercises authority. Josh was just talking about Augustine in Sunday school last week. One of the, his seminal writing works was Confessions. And in Confessions, Augustine says in a prayer to God, command what you will and grant what you command. Meaning, give the call. You are sovereign, you are God, but you have to enable the response to that call. And that's what we are seeing here as Jesus not only makes the call, but he also sees to it that it is answered. Now James and John experience a similar call, verses 21 and 22. Again, we see Jesus calling them, and they immediately, without hesitation, leave their father in the middle of their work, and they follow Jesus. Now, I think there's a reason that we see two different scenarios here. One, Jesus gets Simon, Peter, and Andrew right as they are working, and second, he gets James and John while they are with their father. So there's significance here. I think the point of this is that the call of Jesus involves a complete break with your previous way of life. The call of Christ involves a complete separation from all of the things that used to be your source of security, dependence, whatever it is. Christ calls you away from those things often when he calls. So there's pretty good evidence that Peter and Andrew probably kept their boats after, you remember, after Jesus ascends back in, they go back to fishing. But in this meantime, they take a significant downgrade in their lifestyle. They can't go fishing and follow Jesus at the same time. So he calls them while they're in the middle of the work to show them you're going to Leave your dependence on your vocation. You are going to come and depend on me. Now, what's going on with James and John as Jesus calls them away from their father? Well, he's teaching them that you need to leave the domestic stability. You need to leave what you've kind of counted on. Now, Jesus became a pretty well-known teacher, didn't he? He traveled all over. We see crowds of 5,000, 7,000. This is a big deal. But Jesus never indulged in a lavish lifestyle. He never owned a home. He never had a regular place of residence. And everyone that followed him participated in that life. This was not glamorous. This is not like Kenneth Copeland calling someone to come ride on his private jet, which is an abomination. Jesus lived a very humble life. He never had wealth. Not in the sense that we think it is. So when he calls people, to follow him, he is calling them to leave vocational security, as we see with Andrew and Peter. He is calling them to leave domestic security, father, mother, security. Everyone likes to wake up at home, right? I do. But Jesus calls these men away from that. So by seeing these two different kinds of calls, not only are we seeing that Jesus has the right to call people unto himself, but we're seeing that it requires giving something up. It requires leaving something behind. What have we left behind to follow Christ? And we don't have to, you know, go over the top and purposefully live as paupers and kind of 
you know, self-debasing and, and, and act like we're really worse off than we are. That's, that's hypocritical. But has following Jesus ever cost you anything? Something to think about. So when James and John leave their dad and follow Jesus, not only are they leaving behind their comfort, but they're kind of leaving poor Zebedee in the lurch, right? I mean, they're in the middle of doing this work that they're all in the family business, and two of his best, probably most dependable employees leave <laughs> right in the middle of the task. So what happens to poor Zebedee? I mean, fishing is the primary occupation. If you lived along the coast in, in Capernaum in this region, that's about all there was for the lower middle class people is fishing. So what happens when that goes bye-bye? What happens to Zebedee? Maybe he was angry with them. Maybe they felt guilty about leaving him high and dry. But when the Son of God calls you, when Jesus exercises divine authority and says, follow me, the point here is that we're to leave everything and follow him. I think Paul picks this up when he's writing to the Philippians and he has in mind this, this call of Christ leaving things for the sake of the gospel. In Philippians 3, 7, you can just write this down. Philippians 3, 7, Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. You know, it is true that depending on our context and depending on where God has you, following Jesus might cost you everything earthly. But what if rather instead of looking at following Jesus in terms of what we lose, what if we looked at it biblically in terms of what you gain? What did Paul just say? I suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage in order that I might gain Christ. And I promise you, the gain of Christ is worth the loss of anything. Anything. Relationship, business, social standing, reputation. Count it all as loss. Because what you gain, what you inherit, what comes to be your possession is God through Christ. And I think that's what we are meant to see. That's what Paul wants us to see. And that's what Jesus is doing with the disciples. That when they come and follow him, they are gaining so much more than a fishing business. They are gaining Christ. So Jesus fulfills prophecy. He demonstrates his divine authority in the call of the disciples. And lastly, and more briefly, verses 23 to 25, he models his shepherding ministry. Now this is a huge part of the messianic ministry. This takes up a lot of space in the Old Testament as God, several times, I'm thinking Ezekiel and Jeremiah, he indicts the shepherds of the people for being selfish. And he says, I'm going to raise up my own shepherd in the line of David who's actually going to care for my people. And this is what Jesus does. This We call this his shepherding ministry. And this includes things like 
teaching, healing the sick, preaching the word of God to them. Jesus demonstrates all of these things in these last few verses of Matthew 4. And this is Matthew's way of telling the readers once again, this is him. This is the one who's promised, look, look at everything he's doing. He's fulfilling everything that was written about him. This is him. So if we look at verse 23, we see that Jesus started his ministry as an itinerant preacher, meaning he traveled around. He traveled around Galilee, teaching and healing and preaching. Now, Galilee was relatively small, about 70 miles by 40, roughly, and about 200 villages and cities, so... Traveling on foot, Jesus probably spent three to five months making this first circuit around teaching, doing all the things that we see him doing here. And also, as he does this, as he establishes his public ministry, look again at verse 23 and see what is he doing. Here's the three things that I told you about before. So look at verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching... In their synagogues, there's the first thing Messiah does. He teaches, he speaks the truth of God's word to the people and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's preaching. Proclaiming is proclamation. That's the preaching, that's the heralding, that's calling people to repentance. It's not just communication of information. It is saying, repent, come, the kingdom is at hand. That's the preaching part. And healing every disease. Teaching, preaching, healing. These are the big things that we see Jesus do in his public ministry. And again, it's not just haphazard. It's not accidental. Jesus doesn't come on the scene and say, I'm going to pick three things that I think will be kind of helpful for everybody. He is doing this in fulfillment of what was written of him long ago. So that Matthew nine times in his gospel can say, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Isn't that great? No accidents. No accidents. This is the right time, this is the right place, and this is the right man to fulfill all the promises of God. So, Matthew 4, 12 to 25, Jesus fulfills prophecy. He demonstrates divine authority, and he models or previews his shepherding ministry that is going to develop throughout his entire lifetime. Now, I said that this is sort of an observation text, right? We're watching what's going on, but I do want to go back and apply one thing as we close, and it has to do with just the word of hope that I think Matthew gives to his readers, and I want to do the same for us this morning. So I want to go back and look at his quotation from Isaiah in the first section here. Now, Israel's condition uh, at the time that Jesus comes is not great, Right? They are under Roman rule. They're not free. They have gained a little bit of you know, liberty to practice some religious things, but they are still being oppressively ruled by a pagan government. In short, it was a dark time. Just like Isaiah said it would be. Just a little plug right there. But Matthew offers his readers hope by telling them that this long-awaited Messiah has come. The light that is going to dispel the darkness, has dawned. In other words, what do we say that means? It's starting. Things are in motion. Things are happening with the coming of Jesus. I think oftentimes, we find ourselves now 
in places of darkness. And it would be easy at times for us to think of ourselves, you know, living where we live as having some real advantages over the context of Matthew's day. And we do have more advantages. We have the completed canon of Scripture, the whole Bible. We have access to theological resources, books, sermons, lectures, seminary education, all kinds of things that they did not have access to. Yet, what's changed? (laughs) We still find ourselves in places of darkness. We don't recognize what God is doing all the time. We're frustrated and say, God, why aren't you keeping your promises? Where are you? But Matthew offers hope not in a physical sense, because the darkness is not something that can be solved by human means. The way to get out of darkness for the people in Matthew's day was a spiritual solution, and it is the same in our day. The world is a dark place, granted, but it's always been a dark place, and there has always been a need for hope and for light, and so what I want to end with this morning is I want to offer to us the same hope that Matthew offered to his readers through the perfect obedience of Jesus. I hold out the same light to you this morning that Matthew holds out to his readers and that light cannot and will not be extinguished. So what's the application of the text? Just like Isaiah and just like Matthew, I say to us, to the people Walking in darkness, the light has dawned. Christ has come. And we're just getting into the season of the calendar year where all of us are going to be encouraged to think about Christmas, maybe for good or bad reasons. But we can celebrate the dawning, the coming, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, and we can see that as the way to deal with darkness. The dark condition of the world is not going to be solved with a better political system. It is not going to be solved by technological advances. Man, if I could just get this smartphone to do something better, all my problems would be gone. That's not the answer. Jesus is the only answer to darkness. That's it. He is the light that has come. He is the light that has dawned And only through putting our trust in him and rejecting all of the man-made systems will we find true light. I'm going to close with some verses from the first chapter of John. Hopefully these are very familiar to you. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and that's Christ. The Word was with God and the Word was God He was in the beginning with God, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So if you are in spiritual darkness this morning, look to Jesus. He is the light that will dispel darkness and show you the path to true and lasting peace. Let's pray. Father, we are in darkness apart from your Holy Spirit and apart from the work that only you can do. I'm thankful, Lord, that this morning we've already heard that it's, it's by your grace alone that we are saved.
that we don't, we don't earn our standing before you, we don't earn security with you, but in the free exercise of your grace, you save and you shed light into darkness. I'm just thinking now of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, and he says, in the case of those who can't see the gospel is veiled, the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But then the, the marvelous news, it says, but God shines the light of Jesus Christ so that they can see that he is the Messiah, he is the way. And so God, for all of us here this morning who are walking in darkness, who are dwelling in darkness, who are stuck in the repeated habits of sin and death, would you rescue us from that darkness and shine the light of Christ in our hearts? I pray that there would not be any resistance to the moving of your spirit in our hearts, but that you, by your sovereign grace, would shine the light of Christ over our lives and give us strength to respond in repentance and obedience to you. Father, thank you. Thank you for the start of Jesus' ministry. Thank you for what we learn from him. And I pray as we move on in Matthew now that we would be students of the word. That as we sit at the feet of Jesus, we would learn more of him, learn more of us and what you have called us to. So Father, we thank you for all of these things. And I pray in Jesus' name.